Hi, this is Pastor Danny Deeth, and I'm so excited that you have chosen to join us here at First Presbyterian Church for worship today. Know that the love, grace, mercy, and joy of Jesus Christ beckon you to join our church family as we seek to celebrate our journey with Christ in this service of worship. So we're glad you're here. Come on in. Our first lesson this morning is uh, John 1, 29 to 42. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading is from Psalm 40. Listen for the word of the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the desolate pit, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, and a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Happy are those 
who make the Lord their trust, who do not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after false gods. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. Were I to proclaim and tell of them, they would be more than can be counted. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, here I am in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Do not, O Lord, withhold your mercy from me. Let your steadfast love and your faithfulness keep me safe forever. For evils have encompassed me without number. My iniquities have overtaken me until I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. And then verse 17, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So around 2003-ish, Vicki and I uh, traveled to Philadelphia to see a concert for the band U2. Uh, Frontman Bono, you have The Edge on guitar, you've got Larry and Adam also there in the band. Uh, One of the things that is unique about U2 is that they're very Christian in their thoughts and their seeking. When the band began in the mid to late 70s, they broke kind of in the early 80s, they had to struggle with whether or not to be a Christian band because all of them were people of faith. And there was one point where the Edge, his mama probably didn't name him that, but he's the Edge, uh, the guitar lead guitar player wanted to stop and join an evangelical Christian community and stop playing music. His faith was that important. Well, they talked him back in, but one of the things they struggled with was, are we a Christian band or are we other? And they didn't want to be just pigeonholed into Christian music. But when you see their music and hear their music, you cannot help but see how faith is woven in and out of everything they do. One of their biggest, you still haven't found, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. There's one verse that says, you broke the bonds and loose the chains, carried the cross in all my shame, all my shame. You know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And so many of their songs weave in faith and Christian uh, uh, seeking and values. The song uh, I'm thinking about today is called 40. And they have several that are based on scripture, as is this one on our psalm for the day, which is Psalm 40. And verbatim almost sings through just the biblical verses to make that song. And at the end of the concert, and I read another account of this, somebody in 85, worked 2003 when Vicki and I were there, so they must have been doing it this whole time, a standard part of the way that their concerts end. So after two or three encores, they, they played this as the very last song. And when they get to the part at the end of that song, people start 
to peel off. So the drummer goes, and there are no drums, but everybody else is still doing it. Then the edge goes, there's no guitar, and then the bass player goes, and there's no bass leaving Bono to then sing, how long sing this song? How long sing this song? And gets the crowd going, everybody's singing it, and then after a minute or two, he goes, good night, everybody. How long? And the crowd continues. We probably stayed for 15, 20 minutes just seeing how long everybody would stay to continue to sing that one line, that one phrase. People then peeled off and started exiting, and in the parking lot, people are still singing. And the question derives from this psalm. How long are we going to have to wait till things are as they're supposed to be? So let's take a look at Psalm 40 and back up a little bit. We know that the book of Psalms, there are how many total? 150, right, very good. And it's a great place to start as an entrance into Scripture if you're not comfortable or familiar with Scripture because there are these just 150 of these short poems. Some are longer, but the majority of them are manageable. They convey all kinds of emotion from praise and thanksgiving, but also anger and despair, death, forgiveness, mercy, joy, hate, all of that can be found in the Psalms. This Psalm is attributed to David, who, as Vicki said, we know will, uh, from being King David and all the stories of his life. He's attributed to writing the majority of the Psalms, and this one is no different. An example, so this is a Psalm of thanksgiving and praise, but some other things. An example of a Psalm of forgiveness is Psalm 51, which often we read as a confession of faith together that he wrote after the whole Bathsheba mess. Poor choices, bad decisions, people died. He was convicted, he was caught, and now he was in repentance, and that's Psalm 51. They're not all glorious hymns of joy and inspiration. Many of them are also expressing what we might look at as negative things that we wrestle with in our lives. They were human then, we are human now. Many of those things are conveyed through the Psalms. So we're in Psalm 40, which is in the first book of the way the whole book of Psalms is broken up into five books. So Psalm 1 through 41 is the first book. 42 through 72 is the second book. 73 through 89 the 90 to 106 and 107 to 105. Why five books? Um, we're not completely certain, but there's some conjecture that it may parallel the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the law, uh, the Pentateuch. Um, but for whatever reason, we're in that first book with Psalm 40. So it starts right away. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the death, desolate pit out of the miry bog, set my feet upon a rock. 
Now, it's kind of interesting because it starts with this praise and thanksgiving, and then it'll shift in the middle of the end to then the next series of problems that David has. So we have this whole first section of praise and thanksgiving, and then David says, Lord, I'm, I'm up to my neck again. I'm here again. And ends it with, do not delay, oh God. I'm in trouble. Where are you? And so it's, you might think, a, a more logical sequence to be in trouble, to ask God for help, and then to thank God after God helps. But here David starts with thanksgiving. Why? Because he has had prior relationship, encounter, and experience with God. David already, before he even gets to the things that are overwhelming him, has been able to say thank you to God for what God has done for him thus far. And so our first thing I want us to consider is that for us to be able to say thank you to God for what God has done, we have to realize that God has been with us in our lives in the amazing gifts of love and grace that God has given us through Jesus Christ. A part of this is about salvation. This miry bog, this pit of despair, <clears throat> pit of despair is a part can be translated in our sin. And that Christ is that rock, literally the rock of our salvation that pulls us out of that place and gives us and grants us new life. We live that through the confession. We just talked about that. And so we give thanks. But on a more practical level, which is where David is, he is sinking in some new challenge. He's struggling. It may very well be that his life is at risk. Maybe there are threats from inside his palace or his family or from external enemies. But he knows that God has been there for him before. So the way for us to realize that is to stop and look at our life to see where God has been present. How can we say thank you to God if we never understand that God has done anything for us? You wouldn't say thank you because you might think, well, what has God done for me? And in our reflection, whether it's looking through our journey and seeing where God has been present, whether it's the gift of creation and all of us as a part of it, certainly the gift of Christ as our resurrected Messiah, we have enough to give thanks for right off the bat if we realize it and understand the value of God's love and grace for us. So that first challenge is to give thanks because of the relationship that we already have. And if you don't have that relationship, this is a great time to start. Or if you can't find that place in your life where you feel like God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit have been, come on, this is what we do. Let's do this together. And we will find those moments and then realize, as we often do, sometimes we have those conversion moments and we know, but sometimes we look back and we think, well, of course, how could that have happened? How could I have been let out or this path any other way than for God's Spirit to have been guiding me. And then we give thanks, even in the desperate times. There's a joke about a pastor in North Carolina, uh, North Dakota. North Dakota, they get real winter up there. He is known 
for his optimism, for his ability to give thanks and praise to God no matter what the situation. He is known in his church, in his community, as always the one who gives thanks and praise. So this particular Sunday morning, there is a blizzard. He spills coffee first all over his Sunday white dress shirt. He skids off of the road and is stuck in a snowdrift, has to walk the last two miles in the midst of this blizzard, falls several times, twists his ankle, is wet head to toe from continually falling in the snow. When he gets to church, he sees that the power is out. The congregants all standing around wondering what to do. And then he notices that the piano player didn't make it so they can't have music. So they light a few candles and everybody's thinking, what in the world can he give thanks for today? So he starts with a prayer in worship and says, dear God, I praise you and thank you that every day is not like today. but still was able to find a way to praise. And that's our first lesson. Secondly, this idea of waiting, waiting. The Psalm starts, I waited patiently for the Lord. Now, when you find yourself in a miry bog or a pit of some sort, whether literally, which I hope is not the case, or figuratively, do you wait patiently for help? Not me. There was a a translation from a a Spanish translator that translated it more, translated the world as, I waited impatiently for the Lord, which sounds more accurate, doesn't it? When we are in trouble or someone we love is in trouble, or we see our church, our community, our schools, our world in trouble, the last thing we want to do is sit back and say, God, I am patiently waiting for you to bring us out of the pit. Maybe it's health challenges. Maybe you didn't do as well on the test as you thought you did. Or maybe a friend is hurting. Maybe you lost a job. A marriage is ending. Family is estranged. There's so many things that challenge us on a regular basis that we partially live in that pit in that miry bog. Do we wait patiently? I I don't see how we do. Now, there is value in having patience. And there's value in knowing that in God's time, things happen. God's time is not our time. But is there another way to look at waiting patiently? Let's take a look at actively waiting. So we are celebrating this weekend uh, the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights movement that defined that era that we still are living into as we seek for all people to be a part of God's family and equal in the sight, not just of God, which we are already, but in one another, in the world, and how all of that works. I want to share a little bit of Dr. King's letter from the Birmingham jail. So here was the context. April 12, 1863, Dr. King and Ralph Abernathy and several others were arrested for violating Alabama's law against mass public demonstrations. 
So they're in jail. And the next day, someone smuggles him a copy of the Birmingham News to where eight white clergy have written a letter saying why they think the actions Dr. King and others have taken uh, are, are the wrong way to go. It is not wise to do these kinds of things. Let it happen in the courts and just let it wait patiently for the Lord to work through the court system. If you do this kind of protest, people can get hurt. It's just going to divide people, and that's not the way to move things forward. So in response to that, and Dr. King starts with that newspaper and starts writing it in the margins, his letter. That will be a few more scraps, and then finally they get him some writing paper that he's able to finish. And he says... In response, for years now, I have heard the word wait, King wrote. This wait almost always means never. And then continued on and said that human progress comes through the tireless efforts of men and women willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. Human progress comes through the tireless efforts of men and women willing to be co-workers with God. So when we're in a bad place, do we just sit passively and wait for God to pull us up on the rock? Safety. What we're being told, what Dr. King is telling us, is that there's a way to not be passive in our waiting, but to be active. Dr. King could no longer wait to see the injustice done to so many that he said, we cannot wait. But what he did was to take action with the gifts that he had been given so that through his actions, God would work to raise those from the pit that were stuck in that place. I believe that waiting patiently for the Lord means that we are trying to find our way out. And in that process, we realize that God is with us and lifting ourselves out. Every once in a while, when things are the worst of the worst, sometimes we do get paralyzed and overwhelmed and we cannot proceed. But the majority of time, the things in our lives, we can have some, okay, what am I going to do? Who can help me? How do we work this out? How do we move forward? And in doing so, God joins us in that process and raises us from the pit and sets our feet upon a rock. Waiting, I believe, is active waiting, not passive waiting. Another example, a more local example. Y'all know this more than I do. I was in CBS last week. And they have a little rack in there where it says local on it, and it's filled with all kinds of books about Columbus. There's a book on Fort Benning. There's a book on postcards that tell the history of Columbus. And there was one written by Judith Grant called Columbus, Georgia, from the Black America series. So I picked that up and was thumbing through it. And was lifted up. I'm lifting up somebody that y'all know as Blind Tom. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah? Okay, all right, all right. 
Tom, blind Tom Wiggins, was born in 1849 in Columbus, Georgia. Both was born blind and a slave from birth. He was sold on the auction block along with his mother, Charity Wiggins, to General James Bethune. He grew up on the Westmoreland Plantation here, but he was exposed to the piano playing of his master. And he encouraged Blind Tom to sit and listen and play. And before too long, it was clear that Blind Tom was gifted without being able to see a note when it came to music and melodies and being able to reproduce what he heard. So much so that he was seen as a child prodigy. He began performing locally at Temperance Hall, which became the Springer Opera House, private homes of white plantation owners. He could reproduce the masters, Tchaikovsky, Bach, Beethoven, and was inspired to write himself from his sounds, from nature, whether it was the rain or hearing the birds sing. He played and toured extensively in the United States and Europe and was buried on the Westmoreland Plantation here in Columbus, and there's a historical marker on Warm Springs Road. Now, did he ever make it out of his pit or miry bog? No. He remained a slave. My guess is that his owners exploited him for his talent. He probably didn't make dime one, but I bet they did. But I also believe that in his pit, music was given to him as a gift to feed his soul. Clearly, he was gifted in the ability to use that gift as God had given it to him. To raise to a certain point as he could, never completely free, but are we ever completely free? God never said, believe in me and you will never despair. Believe in me, there will never be tragedy. Believe in me and life will be skipping down the cobblestone path. Well, no. If we do this Christian thing right, we know it'll be harder because we're swimming upstream from culture and all those who would deride us as they did in David's time. So to wait patiently is to wait actively and wait and use those things that God has given us to lift us out of our mire and our pit. And finally... We're not just meant to be lifted out of the difficult moments in our life. It is our job to help those who are still in the pit. When I was a kid, lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania twice, still a Steelers fan. So I was six-ish, six or seven, and where we lived in Pittsburgh in this time, it was hilly on all signs. We backed up to some woods, and there was this huge ravine Went down on both sides, probably a mile and a half. Okay, it wasn't that long, it was probably 10, 20 feet. Look, looked like it descended forever. Started wide and then at the bottom, just a little couple feet across. And the part where we were, it, there were jagged rocks all lied, uh, uh, built in the side. And we decided we wanted to climb down because we were smart. And I said, I'll go first. 
And I go down, I'm holding on to the rocks, and I slip. I slide all the way down, a huge gash open on the side of my stomach. Well, my buddy couldn't do anything, and I couldn't climb up. There wasn't enough handholds. It was too sharp to be able to get out. I was literally trapped in the pit. Now, the good thing about my friend, which was always a bad thing, was that he had five older brothers, which tormented us to no end. But he ran, and he ran away, I assumed and hoped to go get help. And so there I am, literally in the pit. I am trapped, I am hurt, I am bleeding, and I am alone. But it's not too long that the brothers come, and I see them on a farther end. If I hadn't have been panicking, I couldn't have walked out, but it was easier to fight my way out on the end. And they held hands. The top one held a tree, and they literally built a human chain that went down to the ground enough that I could scamper my way up. They grabbed my hand and they pulled me out. This is the visual symbol of this last part of this psalm. We are not just seeking to get out of difficulty through God's help. It is our call in a world that is still in darkness, that where people are still oppressed, where voices are still not heard, people are still hurting. It is our Christian call that when we are pulled out and God places our feet upon a rock, that we willingly choose to go back into the pit to bring others up so that God can bring us together out of the pit together. So today, let us stand fast and stand on the rock of our salvation. Give thanks to God because you know all of what God has done for you, for us, and will continue to do. Wait actively for the Lord and use the gifts that you've been given, and you will never be, no matter how deep the pit, alone. And then when you find a moment of solace, when your feet are on the rock, know that they are those that we must go back for. Hallelujah. Amen.